The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. I'm so very glad you're here. This is a different episode. This is an episode with just me. And I said that most of the episodes on Applied Curiosity Lab Radio will be with fascinating interviewees, and that is true. But some of the episodes will be reporting from and on what I call curiosity quests. And these are adventures, adventures where I bring my curiosity, or maybe eventually I'll bring you, and we'll bring our curiosity and apply it to different places. In this case, we will be applying it to Japan because that's where we went on this curiosity quest. But it's not just a vacation. It's actually a specific adventure where we take curiosity and certainly have fun, certainly have adventure, try new foods, meet new people. But it's really a way to extract insights and wisdom and actionable bits that we can apply to our lives to make our lives better, to make our lives more adventurous, to obtain business ideas, to kind of shake our brains and to revolutionize the way we think. So that's the purpose of these curiosity quests. And that was the reason that we went to Japan. I mean, of course, we went to Japan to have fun and do all the things that normal people do when they travel. But the reason that I'm reporting on all this and the reason that this is a podcast episode versus just a trip is that I wanna share some of the cool things about Japan, but I also wanna share some of the insights and things that make me curious and things to think about to help us use these trips to revolutionize the way we think. So here goes. We flew into Osaka because we were gonna start our adventures in Nara, and Nara was the very first capital of Japan. And we woke up in the rain the next morning and walked to see the largest bronze and gold Buddha in the world and visit the temple and visit Nara Park. And on our way to this sacred area, this ancient, ancient area, you're walking through Nara, which is old and beautiful, full of antiquities and deer because deer are sacred. So they kind of roam free in the town and particularly in the park and around the temple. And at first it's kind of interesting because they're so cute and they're little deer and you wanna feed them these kind of cookies that you can buy from vendors and people are feeding them all kinds of crap, which I'm sure is really, really unhealthy for them. And at first they're, like I said, really cute. And then they're coming up to you, you know, so domesticated that a couple of them actually pried their nostril into my purse and started tearing at 
papers and my map and the purse that I in my purse that I needed so, so we could get around and even one grabbed my wallet and was yanking at it. I was fighting, literally like tug of warring with this one particular deer. And then the randy male deers are chasing the female deers around and trying to hump them. And so it, what, what started as very novel and cute became kind of like, oh, another deer and they're bothering us. And that is indicative of a lot of what happens when you see something for the first time and it's amazing and it's interesting and it's fascinating and then it becomes mundane and that led me to my first kind of insight thought was how can we keep our interest in the novel and the exciting and the new even when we've seen it over and over again. How do we continue to find the mystique and the mundane? And even when we got to the first temple in Nara to see the amazing Buddha and the surrounding bodhisattvas and all of the interesting artifacts and antiquities, it was just mind-blowing. And we stopped at every shrine and every temple along the way and just took pictures. And even by the end of the day, you know, oh, do we want to walk four more blocks for this additional shrine? No, let's just get back because we had to catch a train to Kyoto. But I want to just say that if you are considering traveling to Japan, definitely stop in Nara, which is in the Nara prefecture, which is just on the outskirts of Kyoto. So we took a train to Kyoto from Nara. It was about an hour. And in Kyoto is when we really started to see the beauty and the, the most interesting thing about Japan, and that, in, in my opinion, and that is the juxtaposition between the ancient, the new, the cultural continuity, the the antiquity, the history, and the the new and the modern and even the alternative and subcultures and craziness, that kind of polarity. We first started seeing that in uh, Kyoto, obviously later in Tokyo that was on steroids, but in Kyoto we saw that. And I love Kyoto walking down the street and seeing women, young women, old women, in kimono. It wasn't a holiday. It wasn't a special occasion. It was just their everyday garb. And I have some questions that I still, I'm still curious about because I don't know, which is, is this some kind of tradition where families pass this on and this family has always had their women have always chosen to dress in kimono? Is this a new trend? Is this something that people embrace? How do they, how do they decide to do that? There are also men, and I apologize, I can't remember the name of their traditional kimono equivalent, but there were a lot of men also in traditional garb. And and they're walking down the street with people just dressed as everyday, you know, normal pair of jeans, shorts, whatever, and also funky, you know, cutting edge fashion. So just looking down the street, you can see all of it. And they're wearing those wooden block thongs, those flip-flops with the wooden blocks with socks in them. And the kimonos are tight, so they're taking these small kind of steps as they're walking along. And they're not dressed as geishas. I mean, they don't have the makeup, and they're certainly not geishas. We did end up getting an opportunity to meet with a geisha apprentice and interview her with a translator. And some of the things that we learned were profound and, and fascinating the geisha culture is down to about 130 geishas in all of Japan. And 
a hundred of them are in Kyoto. Although in Kyoto, the geishas are called geiko. The apprentice geikos are called maikos. And maikos generally start training at the age of 15. And it usually takes them four or five years in training to then become a geiko or a geisha. And while they are in training, they are completely under the administration of and support of their geiko slash geisha mother. They can't go out. They can't date. They can't have cell phones. They really go to one of two places. One, their geiko mother's home or place where they live. And then two, to the tea house for entertaining. And their school stops at the end of junior high, their formal education, and then their education specifically and exclusively becomes training to be a, a geiko or geisha, which includes Japanese history, traditional Japanese music, learning of traditional Japanese instruments, and entertaining. And not much beyond that. They have their hairstyles in this very specific kind of elaborate concoction with hair sticks. And we ask them how it all holds together. And they use some kind of oil in their hair. But that hairstyle is in place for a week. And so they have to sleep on these little wooden pillows that look exceedingly uncomfortable. And then they redo their hair once a week. I actually asked what kind of skincare they use because they all have such beautiful skincare. And they said Nivea, which I thought was hilarious. They learn to put on their makeup. They learn to tie their kimonos in the certain way of a geisha. And they are in that training for, like I said, four to five years. This particular mako uh, came from a village outside of Kyoto. And she decided that she wanted to be a geisha when she saw a television program about geishas. No one in her family had been a geisha. When she approached her parents, they were shocked, not thrilled. But she has decided that that's what she's going to do. And at the end of their apprenticeship, the five years, then they decide whether they want to become full, full-fledged geisha slash geikos. And she, this woman that we were interviewing, has decided that that's most likely what she wants to do. Once you become a geisha, you are supported by your sponsor. And that sponsor, as I gather, is a man or maybe men who you entertain for and they sponsor you so that they have access to your entertaining them in the tea houses. I always thought that there was a sexual undertone with geishas, but it turns out that's not the case. It's strictly a very elaborate form of entertainment. And, you know, whether individual geishas make decisions to do more or less, that's not, that wasn't part of the questioning, but certainly it is not a sexual kind of relationship any more than someone would find it sexual to be waited upon and entertained. It's really hard because of these sponsorships, it's really hard for someone that's not Japanese and particularly someone who's not well connected to ever get to have a geisha perform. We were lucky to have this opportunity to have a Maiko perform for us and be able to ask these questions. But I guess when Gorbachev came to Kyoto, he wanted to see a geisha and have a geisha perform or entertain him and he couldn't do it. So it's not, it's not easy. You have to be in the know. You have to hopefully be Japanese and or know someone who is who can invite you. So 
it's a very closed society, the, the geisha community. Once you are a geisha and you're supporting Maikos, you then are like the den mother and you also obtain money through the entertainment that you provide and the entertainment that your apprentice Maikos provide. So that's a it's an interesting culture that goes back thousands of years. And it made me think about and curious and really be curious about ancient cultures because some of the people that were also there asking some of the questions, it was apparent, most of them were Western, and it was apparent that there was some element of judgment, judgment about how little these girls are educated, judgment about the fact that they are in a career that essentially is objectifying themselves or objectifying women. And all of that may be very, very true, but it also is a very ancient culture and seeped in an ancient culture for which people have pride. And that could be the case for a lot of things that could be seen as chauvinistic or misogynistic or even abusive toward women. And it really begs the question of heritage and tradition and the role of heritage and tradition in our lives. And specifically with the movement toward globalization, the movement toward kind of a one world people. We as human beings are tribal creatures. So what happens when we erase the tribes and become one? We look for like-minded people, and that's just what we do. And maybe we look to our heritage, our geographic heritage, our racial heritage, our cultural, religious heritage, our, our political heritage, our political ideologies. All of these things are what bring people together. It's why people say, hey, I want to get together with like-minded people. And that always gives me pause because that can be a very wonderful, empowering thing, but it can also be a dangerous thing. And it's kind of makes me think of the difference between, for example, patriotism and nationalism. And, you know, the geisha culture is clearly a patriotic culture. It's a very historic culture uh, rooted in history, rooted in Japanese history, unique to Japan, versus a nationalistic kind of thing, which is pushing other cultures away. But, you know, to a certain extent, it is exclusive to the Japanese people, or at least it's a lot harder for non-Japanese people to participate. In this case, they were very open, very sharing of their culture, and it was fascinating, and I really, really appreciated the opportunity. What happens when your culture and your pride of culture is intricately intertwined with someone else's cultural tragedy? And that can be Southern culture being totally intertwined with the tragedy and atrocities of slavery. Or what happens when your culture is intertwined, your own culture is just inextricably intertwined with tragedy. And that can be, again, slavery or the Native American culture or even you know the Holocaust culture. These are some of the things that I was thinking about as I was listening to the Maiko describing with pride their culture and seeing some of the people that were interviewing them clearly shocked, appalled at the objectification of women. And that was a very interesting finding and one of my takeaways on this curiosity quest. I don't have answers. You know, curiosity is more about questions than answers, and that might be frustrating for some. Some people might want tidy takeaways, but in this case, living curiously is 
for me at least, more about questions than answers. So those are some of the things that I was thinking about. The rest of Kyoto was amazing. The food markets, shrines, the temples, the shops, the people, the vibrancy. I could go back again and again. After we left Kyoto, we went to Koyasan, which was a mountain region where we took this funicular slash tram. It was almost at a 90 degree angle up into the mountains where it's a Buddhist, kind of a Buddhist enclave. And up until a number of years ago, only men and only monks were allowed up in Koyasan. And that's changed. It's still a very tiny monk town, monk-driven town and full of monasteries. And we stayed in a monastery. That was a wonderful experience. Most of the places and all throughout Japan, and even when you're going into a dressing room in like a flea market, you take off your shoes. You're going into this little tiny, in the case of a flea market, maybe a little tiny behind the curtains dressing room to try on something. And there's maybe a little circular carpet, but still you take off your shoes and you either put on slippers that are provided or you're in your socks. And that certainly goes for inside any house. And in the monastery they have, and a lot of other places, they have shoes, slippers that you put on, and then you take off your slippers when you go on the tatami mats. And the tatami mats are where you eat and where you sleep. And on the tatami mats are futons and they're set very specific ways. The pillows were made of, I felt like they were stuffed with rice, but evidently it's something that felt like rice. So it was, I thought it was comfortable. A lot of people felt that it was uncomfortable. When you go into the bathrooms, you put on your toilet slippers. And I, when we asked our guide, what, what are some of the things that Japanese people think are hilarious that Western people do. She said they feel find it hilarious that they would wear their house slippers in where inside the bathroom or inside the toilet room, which is a whole nother area of fascination. The toilets in Japan, I was going to do a whole montage. Toilets of Japan, they have more buttons. So there are the toilets that are just, I call them the Chinese style toilets, the squat toilets, which is just a porcelain hole in the ground. And then the Western toilets, which are far from Western, are regular toilets where the seats are heated. They have buttons that include a cleaning spray so that you can wipe the toilet seats down, a sound so that you can eliminate any bathroom sounds, uh, sprayers for scent, bidet, always a bidet, a back and then some other kind of bidet sprayer kind of thing, buttons that turn on the toilet light, buttons that shut and open the toilet lid and seat. One time it took me like five different buttons just to figure out how to flush the toilet. It was hilarious. I was thinking of a Marsha Brady episode in the Brady Bunch where she was trying to take her driver's test and the windshield wipers were going and all the things that might age me a little bit, but for you older listeners, you'll know what I'm talking about that episode. Anyway, the bathrooms were fascinating. And um, I really, coming home, I miss those toilets. They were so warm to sit down on that toilet seat. And they were all like that everywhere. In the monastery was also an onsen, which are onsens are their baths. And you totally wash yourself thoroughly, cleanly before you get into the bath. So the bath is not a place where you're washing yourself. The bath is where you go when you're clean. And you're naked with other people of the same of the same gender. But if you have a tattoo, you're not allowed in the onsen. So um, it has to do with cleanliness, but it also has to do, I think, with traditionally the Japanese mafia or the Yakuza were the ones that had the tattoos. So 
that that might be kind of a way to keep the Yakuza out. But a friend of mine who had the tattoo, had a tattoo, was really sad because she knew she couldn't go. She has a big tramp stamp and she knew she couldn't go into the onsens. But that I did experience those and that was kind of a fun cultural thing that is a big and integral and historical part of Japan. Also in Koisan is the ancient, ancient graveyard, which was fascinating in that it goes all throughout the woods and it culminates at the top at a monastery or temple where the Kobodashi, I think it's the first Buddhist Buddha or monk that brought Buddhism from, well, it came from India to China to then Japan and then somewhat integrated with Japan's indigenous religion of Shinto. But this particular monk has been meditating for, I think, like 500 years. Many people would say he's dead, but the Buddhists say he is meditating, and every day the monks bring him two meals a day. So whether it's snowy up there or rainy, sleet, whatever, they bring the Kobodashi two meals a day. The Buddhist monks were so gracious in sharing as much as they could about the culture. They invited us to a Buddhist ceremony in the morning, a fire ceremony. They had us participate. They tried to explain as much as they could. The chants, it's almost like gregarian chants. But the, but the takeaway from that was that, like a lot of religions, there are a lot of what I would call accoutrements, physical accoutrements, or tchotchkes, that they use as part of their ceremony. And I found it very similar to when I was in South America, visiting the home of some very religious Catholic people, and all of the accoutrements and tchotchkes that they have. And you know, we humans are interesting in that we infuse so much meaning in physical objects, whether we fight over heirlooms and families break up over things that we want that are physical, things that really otherwise would not be infused with meaning. I mean, much more so than the monetary value of things. And it seems to be kind of a universal human condition. I mean, some people are much more hoardy about things or much more into collectibles than others. But it seems to be a very common human condition to collect and infuse meaning and spirituality in things. And so the Buddha ceremony was very interesting because there were so many things from sticks to fire to sounds to gongs to sand to incense to metal objects to bells. It was just fascinating to see the use of all of these things. And I was so curious to know, you know, when did this start or how did this come about? But there are only so many questions you can ask before you sound annoying. And oftentimes I breach that way too easily. So that was a great experience in Koyasan. And if you do go to Japan, I highly recommend that you do that and stay in a monastery. Later, we stayed in a I think it's a Ryokan. We were I was pronouncing it wrong, but that's a traditional Japanese home kind of their early, early version of Airbnb. And that was also a great experience where we got to stay in, you know, sleep on tatami mats, on futons. 
in general, I thought it was it was fun and interesting, but I have to admit that I prefer my own hotel room with my own cool Japanese bathroom with all of the cool things that those Japanese toilets do. That's just me. But as an aside, we've, we have visited many other places. One of the other highlights that I would recommend and that was full of takeaways was Hiroshima. And Hiroshima is all post-war buildings with one major exception, and that is the Peace Dome. It's a remnant of a building with a remnant of a dome that was left over that kind of was partially standing after the bomb of August 6th. 1945. And you can see it just right when you drive in. It's just a stark contrast to all the other buildings. There might be a few other buildings, nondescript buildings that survived or part of them that survived, but this is the symbolic symbolic surviving building. And it's right by the memorial, the Peace Park, and the museum. The museum had a huge long wall, kind of a pano photograph of the day before the bomb and the same exact pano of the day after the bomb. And the day before the bomb looked like any other day. People riding bikes, whizzing by. It just looked like any day. Cars, people walking on the street. And then the next photo, then there's this clock that has the time on August 6, 1945 that the bomb dropped. There's a clock that's stopped at the exact time. And then there's the replica photo of right after. And it's gone. Everything is gone. There's one cyclist you can see just riding his bike down the street and everything is obliterated. And I'm sure that those people on August 5th weren't thinking of the fact that they are living in history. They were thinking that they're modern. History was yesterday. And I think we all make this mistake. We all fail to understand that we are living in history, meaning we are tomorrow's lesson. And my one wish while I was there, 500 miles away from North Korea, watching the dipshittery of the tweets back and forth between two braggadocious men and their minions was that I wish that someone could drag them to see these photos and this lesson and have them realize that reading the documents of the men who sealed the fate of thousands, thousands, if not millions, ultimately, of people, that these decisions were simple decisions, errant decisions, decisions that weren't infused with any kind of spiritual greatness, but just decisions of regular people that changed the course of the world on a specific day. And I also was curious about whether the kind of the slant would be anti-American or pro-Japanese or justifications, but it really wasn't. It was really to promote peace. It was very factual. It was enlightening. It was scary. It was devastatingly sad, but it was not political or propaganda. It wasn't It wasn't a whole propaganda piece. And, th- and that I was very appreciative. And I think that anyone would benefit from a trip there to learn the lessons. And I wish that people in power would take the time 
to go and see that we are living in history and we are not immortal and yet we can affect things today that could have huge ramifications for tomorrow and we are tomorrow's we are tomorrow's history so anyway that was kind of an interesting takeaway i couldn't help but think about that the whole time we were there and it was raining and it's a beautiful town there's mountains in the background there's a river running through it cyclists all over I was wondering if it was still radioactive, and everyone said, no, it's not. But I kind of wonder when you think about the half-life of radioactive material. But again, maybe I don't want to think about that too much. And clearly, you know, it's a whole city where people are living, so hopefully that's not an issue. We visited some other places that included some places with palaces. And the one interesting thing about the palaces throughout Japan is that for the most part, there might be have been some exceptions, but for the most part, no one lived in the palaces. So the emperor didn't live in the palace. The shogunate didn't live in the palace. The palaces were there for showing military and political might, bravado. And then adjacent buildings were lived in by the shogunate, the samurais. I didn't know that ninjas were double agent spies. I always thought they were kind of fighters, but they were really more spies, information seekers and revealers than fighters. We went to Tokyo, loved Tokyo. So many lessons from Tokyo, so many areas to visit. The subway system is fantastic there. There are two subway lines, and then there is one they call JR line, which is the Japan Rail Line. And it's pretty easy to navigate once you get the hang of it. It's harder to navigate up and down the streets because the GPS with all the tall buildings gets screwed up. The one thing I will thank a friend who lived in Japan for a year and gave a lot of tips that we acted on, all of which were fantastic. The first tip that she gave us was when you land in the airport, if you're interested in having Wi-Fi access, get a portable Wi-Fi device, rent one. It was like eight bucks a day. It was the best thing. I was able to do Facebook Live from remote places, which was really fun to share some of the things, whether it was the monastery or the uh, Tsujiki fish market or the Golden Guy area, which is the red light district. So many places that I was able to share with, that I would have never had Wi-Fi access. But it's really hard to use GPS because of all the buildings. And then a lot of the names of the streets are not in in alphabet. And so it made it very difficult to navigate. We were able to do it, but it was it was that was kind of more of a challenge than I anticipated. And the Wi-Fi was eh, only moderately helpful. But we did make our way around via the subway, and that turned out to be a lot easier. Even though Japan in the 80s was cutting edge, Japan was the emulated business model, the Toyota way, the electronic cutting edge leaders, Sony Walkman, and before that, the Sony Betamax, and all of the cameras and everything with electronic, electronic. It almost seemed like since the recession that has been going on for 30 years, that a lot of that has been frozen in time, almost like Cuba, frozen in time in the 50s. It's almost like frozen in time in the electronic 80s. And I'm not suggesting that the Akihabara doesn't have all the latest and greatest electronic equipment and flashing lights, and it certainly does. But whether we're in a hotel, it's mostly paper. They don't have electronic check-ins at most of the places. The subways don't take credit cards. A lot of the restaurants don't take credit cards. The subways actually take coins and spit out paper, little tickets like the olden days in New York. You think of how advanced Japan was and how stagnant it seems relative to that advancement. 
like I said, when I was growing up in the 80s, high school and in college, everyone was talking about the business model of Japan. People were hired, they were treated well, they were lifelong employees, and it's very, very different today. And I'll touch upon that in a minute and share some of the things that I'm curious about as a result of that. So many things to enjoy. Again, the juxtaposition between the ancient heritage we visited. One of the most fascinating things we did was we visited a sumo wrestling stable. So we took a train and then another train and then a bus. And then we walked through a neighborhood, just a quiet little neighborhood. And we looked down the street and there I see like these naked buns in their mawashis. And there was the sumo stable. We were given a list, a long list of rules that if we were going to go watch the tournament, or not tournament, excuse me, the tournament season was over, if we're going to go watch the practice, that we had to follow a very specific set of rules. We could go in, there was no whispering, there was no talking, we had to sit with our feet pointed away from the stable. We could take pictures, not all the stables allowed pictures, so we did take pictures, and there'll be a lot of those pictures in the show notes at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. I'll also have resources and lots of ideas and pictures. So if you are traveling to Japan or know someone who is, be sure to send them not only this podcast episode, but also the show notes where this podcast episode will be embedded as a little aside. But the ritual with the sumo was amazing. It was so fun to see them up close and personal. And the objective of the sumo, you know, it's a hundreds of year old history and heritage. I guess they had some big big uh, scandal a few years back where there was some betting but for the most part it's been pure heritage and these guys were working their buns off some were big and very flabby and very fat and some were just big and muscly and the objective is to push the other sumo out of the stable or have them either touch the ground or land on the ground first so it usually goes one round and it usually goes pretty quickly and this was a very ritualistic practice where they were crashing each other's heads and all kinds of ceremony and very specific sets of things. No real emotion. The main guy or the sensei seemed to be very calm and docile in his instruction. You know, who knows? That could be a one-off, but that was a really amazing experience. And if you do have an opportunity to find someone who can connect you with going to a sumo practice, even maybe even more so than an actual match, I would highly suggest it. it was so intimate and, and really, really cool. But that was part of the ancient sumo culture juxtaposed with the crazy, crazy, you know, Harajuku girls where they're dressed up part, ma- part manga character, anime character, part clown, part high fashion. <laughs> Very, very fun area where there's all kinds of shops. And within uh, the Harajuku area, there's all these stairs where you can go down and there are rooms and rooms and rooms of photo booths. And each of the photo booths in these rooms are themed. So a bunch of high school girls or junior high girls can go in and take pictures as Barbie dolls or as clowns or as love creatures or as... I don't even know, or with with their with looking like rock stars, and I thought to myself, that's kind of strange because you think you could just do that with a Snapchat filter, but there are places and places I can't remember the name of these places down the stairs, one after the other, filled with these booths. There are vending machines everywhere throughout Japan, 
And this is one of the things about Japan that I loved, but you have to wonder if there's also kind of a, 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 a stifling downside. Vending machines selling coffee, hot coffee, cold coffee, cigarettes, alcohol, food, everywhere. And all I could think was on some of these quiet alleys, those vending machines would be broken into in about 30 seconds anywhere in the United States and most of the world, but nothing. There's no vandalism. There's no graffiti on the vending machines and they're everywhere. Crossing the street was also interesting in Japan because there's one street in Tokyo where it's the busiest intersection and all the lights turn red. And so all the pedestrians cross from like 10 different areas and it's just a mad rush across the street. And it's all very orderly and it's chaos. But then you're on a quiet street at you know nine o'clock at night, no cars for days, and you're standing waiting to cross and people don't cross, they don't jaywalk. I mean, you can look and see that there's no cars coming forever. It's a quiet street and they'll just stand there for minute, two minutes, three minutes waiting for the walk sign. And that kind of compliance, or you could call it respect for the law, or you could call it compliance, is what allows some of these other things, allows Japan to be one of the safest communities. But it also, there's a sense of conformity. And that sense of conformity was really, really apparent with all of the men in identical black suits, and they are called salary men, or that's the term that most people refer to them as salary men. And these are men that work in corporations, and traditionally they'd start right out of college and work their whole lives in one job. But the phenomenon is different now because like a lot of the world, humans aren't needed. Not every human is needed to make the, the society function. So it is getting more and more difficult to find jobs that, that provide a family, wage, a wage to raise a family. Women traditionally, like a lot of societies, have taken care of the children and, the, and are expected to take care of the home, but now they're entering the workforce and they're still expected to take care of the children and the home. So there's kind of not a huge incentive for them to have a family. There's not a lot of financial incentive. There's not a lot of financial ability. So you're seeing something really interesting in Japan that is also pl being played out in other parts of the world, but it doesn't seem like people are drawing the same conclusions. They're making all these, they're jumping to all these reasons for it happening that seem kind of weird to me. And I was curious about that. So people were saying, well, now that women are entering the workforce and there's all of these maid cafes and all of these sexual opportunities for men to go and, and, and exploit, which I'll talk about in a minute, maybe they don't need to get married anymore, or maybe there's just not incentive for the women to marry these guys when they have just as good a job. And, you know, that's certainly all of these things are, I'm sure, small parts of it. But a greater part of it just might be that the society, like a lot of societies, are able to function with fewer people. And yet there is this expectation that people work and a complacency that people have a job, dress the same way, go to the same corporation, have the same things, and the same expectations are, are put upon them. And you see this at eight o'clock at night, all of these guys in black suits, literally black suits, are all coming home from work. And the more you read about it, the more you question, there isn't enough work for them to be working till eight, but a lot of them don't wanna be the first to leave because it affects company morale. They don't wanna leave before their boss. And they are evaluated on how long they work, not how effectively they work. So there's a disincentive to be productive. Like if you hurry and get your job done at noon, you're not going home any earlier. So there's not really a lot of work in a lot of cases to be productive for all of those hours. It's an interesting phenomenon and it's resulting in very high levels, uh, high rates of suicide. So there's 
some downsides to this complacency, but there's some upside. And that's why curiously looking at some of these things from a vantage point of curiosity will give those insights and allow those insights to percolate and come to the fore because it's not always these tidy takeaways that it's all good or all bad, like anything. The other thing that was interesting about looking at Tokyo and what's happened with these salary men is they used to be what everyone aspired to, this Toyota way in the 80s. And now that Japan has been in a recession for over 30 years, some of these things that we predicted that were the wave of the future were just simply wrong. And it makes me curious about how, what poor prognosticators, what poor predictors we are as humans. And this is just perhaps a little controversial question, but it makes me wonder about how we're pushing for STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And I think it's important. Certainly, these are important things we should push to be more proficient in science, technology, and engineering, and math. But I think this push to STEM in lieu of or in place of the arts or critical thinking or some of the quote unquote softer sciences is dangerous because it may very well be that these STEM jobs that create these robots, artificial AI, are the exact jobs that will be replaced by robots and AI, artificial intelligence. And we're not seeing that. We're seeing that we need to push, push, push to go into STEM. We don't need the psychology. We don't need the arts. We don't need the culture. We don't need the ethics, the study of ethics, anthropology, history. These are things that don't have a good return on our investment for our students to learn in college. But maybe those are the exact things that will. And maybe we're getting it all wrong, just like we got wrong that the Toyota way was the way of the future. So that was something that I was thinking about walking walking through the subways and watching some of these people coming home all dressed the same and kind of stuck in what looked like kind of the 80s, the 80s business model at a time when it's really probably not applicable anymore or perhaps not applicable anymore. So that was one of the things. The final thing about Tokyo, most of which I loved and adored, all the nooks and crannies, and I tend to go up the stairs and through the, the areas that might be beyond the surface to f- talk to people or ask people or see things or experience things. That's part of the Curiosity Quest nature. And we had a lot of fascinating conversations and experiences as a result. But the one thing that really was highlighted was when my husband and I, Steve and I were approached on the street and asked if we would participate in a Japanese television show. And these two guys were wanting to find people from the US to ask their impressions of Japan. Actually, a lot of people were really curious about what we thought as Americans of Japan. And they were so, so kind and proud and excited that we love Japan as much as we we clearly did. But these guys for the show, we were you know going on and on about how much we love J- Japan and three times they kept pushing, but do you find anything strange? Do you find anything strange? And finally I said, well, you know, I didn't want to be judgy and so I was hesitant, but finally I said, yeah, there is something I do find really, really strange and it's mostly in the Akihabara district. I find it really strange that there is this element where women or young girls are dressing like little tiny preteen girls either in as cartoons and anime with these huge breasts and these sexual 
images and these girls in these maid cafes where you where guys go and they these girls come up to them dressed as girls and they sing and dance in these high-pitched voices and their piggy tails and tell them how handsome they are and how strong they are and how smart they are. And as you go further into the bowels of some of these places, there are notebooks with young girls, I mean, teenage, preteen girls with numbers on them. And I think it goes from the innocent kind of maybe ugh, a little uncomfortable with the, the hint of sex to full-on blatant sex. And I think that this culture of pedophilia is weird. I just came right out and said it. And the guy kind of gulped and looked a little bit sheepish. But I, I mean, it is the thing that I think is strange. And I, you know, it's hard because you're pointing to someone else's culture, but it's, it's, and maybe that's, again, what's acceptable in one culture doesn't necessarily make it acceptable in another. And it's hard to bring your judgment, but in a certain, at a certain point, it's hard not to bring judgment and, and where those lines are crossed. I mean, whether you're going to the Middle East and women are treated a certain way because of a religion or because of an interpretation of religion, or you're going to Japan and women are treated a certain way because of a cultural acceptance, or you're coming to the U.S. and women are treated a certain way because of a history of getting ahead by acting a certain way. I mean, all of these things are things that we may be very used to, and maybe we need to not be critical of, but maybe we do. And I don't know, that that was just something that I found disturbing. Um, fascinating, but disturbing, as we were walking through particularly the Akihabara district. And I'll throw some photos on the show notes that might be a little bit more explicit because I was sneaking and taking some pictures. At one point, one of the guys in the maid cafe actually grabbed my phone and deleted some pictures. Then when he turned around, I took some more. So I figured, you know what? It's nothing religious or sacred about what you're doing. I can take a picture. And I did. So I'll throw I'll throw some of those on the show notes at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. Anyway, this is the kind of experience and these are the kinds of things that I like to investigate to bring my curiosity. Maybe I come up with new ways of thinking for my life, trying to see the mystique of the mundane. A lot of times you come up with business ideas, new foods that you could bring to this country, solutions to problems that they have come up with that might be applicable here. I think when you read about so many companies, whether it's Howard Schultz and Starbucks or so many of these companies, it comes from trips and being curious and getting ideas. And that can be for business and that can be for life. And that's the purpose of these curiosity quests and why I'm hoping in 2018 to start bringing other people on curiosity quests where we use lessons of applied curiosity, specifically the training of archetypes and peak curiosity and some of the corporate training I do to these adventures so that we can see things others miss and make better decisions and learn to apply adventure to our own lives. So I hope this was fun, helpful, and you enjoyed this episode. And next week, we'll be back to our regular fascinating interviews with people from different industries, cultures, and countercultures so that we can continue to live curiously. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the Tribe of the Curious. 
you'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.